0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Peter Marshall about his new history of English Reformation of the 16th century, entitled Heretics and Believers, a History of the English Reformation. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Peter Marshall about his new history of English Reformation of the 16th century, entitled Heretics and Believers, a History of the English Reformation. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Okay. um, Well, um, I'm a historian uh, at the University of Warwick in in the UK, uh, and spent most of my career there, I guess. I've been there over 20 years now. Uh, I'm uh, originally from the north of Scotland, but been living in in England a long time, so I guess I probably sound a bit uh, English. Uh, More to the purpose, um, uh, I'm a historian of religion, I guess I would say primarily a a social historian of religion, so those distinctions sometimes don't mean terribly much, Uh, and I've been working one way or another on uh, the Reformation, and particularly the English Reformation, really since the start of my career, since I was a graduate student uh, in the mid-1980s. So in, a, in one sense, this book isn't a new departure for me. Um, uh, and I guess you would say, I'm probably not going to tell your listeners exactly how old I am, but uh, I'm kind of in mid-career, and, and I felt I'd reached that moment uh, where I wanted to kind of pull together a lot of the work I'd done in the past and just think about this, this big topic uh, the, the The Reformation of religion in England, and what that meant, uh, and also if it was possible to uh, to tell it in a kind of fresh and engaging way, uh, one of the things that um, I suppose happens to these big important topics, uh, you know whether it 's the Civil War in your country or the French Revolution or whatever it might be um, they 're just so huge in a way they become so specialist, uh, and we kind of divide out the process of. Um, uh, tackling the minutiae of it and uh, you get to a point where you sort of lose the big picture or the big picture is only captured in sort of brief overviews and surveys so I, I suppose the challenge I was setting myself was whether it was possible to, to write a single volume not completely comprehensive but, but fairly full accounts of the English Reformation that was at the same time able to say something new or I hope say something new.
0: The scope of your book is really quite broad because it's not just a history of the Reformation but to set it into context you begin by explaining the religious life of England in the decades prior to the English Reformation and what you provide there uh, helps to explain a lot of what follows in the 1520s, 1530s, all the way up for the rest of the 16th century. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining uh, a bit as to what the state of, of uh, the Christian faith was in England in the late medieval, uh, early 16th century. Sure.
1: Well, there isn't a short answer to that question, uh, which is I guess why I, I spend a hundred or, or so pages of, of the book sort of stepping a, a around it. Um, I mean, maybe just to give a bit of sort of context to, to the listeners for for that question, um, I, I'll say something briefly about the, the way that the scholarship around that has has changed. Um, and, and I feel a little hypocritical doing this, because one of the decisions I made with the book was that I wasn't going to spend time talking about other scholars and picking fights with them and um, really going into, I guess, what we call the historiography. A lot of that is there in, in the footnotes.
0: Uh, uh, but I, I, I wanted I should, really
1: I, just to kind of, you
0: know... I should interject. So, that. Sorry, one, go on. That, that's one of the points you make early on in the book, is that this is a... Uh, of, the, of, the, of the topics in history where you could basically encounter a very fertile debate this is one of the sure. greatest and and yet you do make that clear that what you're getting is you, you you take a lot of that debate you move it to the footnotes and you you get that presentation but as you were saying that there, there, there is definitely that that engagement in terms of the ideas you present uh,
1: uh, yeah well I'm, I'm glad to hear you you say that and and i didn't want to sort of um, keep the overt debate out of the book uh, to give the impression that you know nobody else had said anything interesting about this before, or that everything I was saying was completely new. Or, or worse still, to write a sort of bland consensual account that nobody was going to have an, an an issue with. Uh, I mean, going back to the question of um, the pre-Reformation church, um, and one of the first things I'll say about that, slightly paradoxically, is that uh, I think I don't ever use that phrase, the pre-Reformation church because the moment you stop to think about it, of course, um, uh, it's tremendously kind of, I guess the word would be teleological. You know, you're, you're looking at late medieval church, late medieval faith, in terms of what we know is going to happen to it, a reformation. So it has a kind of, you know, a question mark built into that uh, very phrase, the pre-Reformation church. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to, to do with the book um, was, um, as it were, to, to write it forwards at every stage. Um, and to uh, try and capture the sense that contemporaries, of course, had that they didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't know a Reformation was coming, and when the Reformation started, they didn't know which directions it was going to to go in. Um, So this made the first part of the book rather challenging because I didn't really want it to be, you know, about the causes of the Reformation, where I would sort of start listing off all the reasons why we might expect a Reformation is about to happen. But then on the other hand... Um, I wanted to weave it into my narrative to make what happens later explicable. It has been made, perhaps not entirely fairly, against what has been called the, the revisionist school of historians. Um, and if people are not familiar with that term, this is a kind of movement in, in writing about the English Reformation, really picking up speed from uh, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, which challenges an older, much older, I guess we could say, uh, Protestant or Whiggish narrative, that the Reformation almost kind of explains itself, because the uh, the late medieval church was corrupt, the, the religion it was purveying was uh, superstitious... Um, uh, right-minded people would, of course, recognize uh, a much better form of Christianity in what Martin Luther and his go across Europe were presenting, um, and would also want to kind of free themselves from the oppressive structures of, of the church. Now, revisionism told us quite rightly that that was not true, or that was not adequate as an account of what religious faith and its institutional expression was like in England in the late 15th, early 16th century. And quite rightly, revisionist historians, and here I suppose we'd be thinking about people like um, uh, Eamon Duffy, uh, recently retired from the University of of Cambridge, or um, my predecessor at the University of Warwick, Jack Scammersbrick, Uh, they very rightly pointed out that there's a lot of evidence that people were pretty content with their church, um, that late medieval religion was uh, meeting all kinds of devotional and cultural and spiritual needs pretty effectively, that, yes, of course, there were problems, but to talk in terms of, you know, absolutely rife corruption across the board um, didn't really make much sense. Um, And that was all absolutely right, but I suppose there was a danger then that the Reformation almost started to seem inexplicable, and sometimes rather jokingly revisionist historians were accused of proving that the Reformation never happened. (laughs) And of course, uh, of course it did. So in a sense, what I wanted to do was try and, and tell a story of the origins of the Reformation, that was, on the one hand, strongly making the point that it was not inevitable, but on the other was trying to make it seem explicable. Um, And perhaps a better way to put it is that I wanted to um, root the Reformation in late medieval religion, rather than see it as something uh, which is just a reaction against it, or something that kind of inexplicably arises up and attacks it from outside, but to understand that the Reformation actually is a Reformation within the late medieval Catholic Church. one of the points I always make to my students and I think I probably make it somewhere in, in the book if not several times that you know when we're looking at the early 16th century and on into the 1520s 1530s even uh, there are no Protestants. Martin Luther is not a Protestant. Nobody uh, in that period uses that descriptive label about themselves. Subsequently they come to be called that and uh, retrospectively they are seen as the beginnings of a new tradition. Uh, but in fact of course these people were late medieval Catholics, raised in the traditions of late medieval Catholicism and with the cultural presumptions of late medieval Catholics. So understanding that, as it were, the Reformation is uh, an event within the Catholic Church rather than just arising against it, I think is quite important.
0: I thought one of the ways in which you made that very well was by highlighting at one point in the book the the continuing presence of lollardry. Which is something that historians typically associate with the fifteenth century, and oftentimes is viewed, uh, you know, primarily from the fifteenth century. And yet, by extending it forward, you make it that connection clear that this is very much of a late medieval church that's dealing with a lot of the issues that are continuing from a period in which we never think of the Reformation as existing. Sure.
1: Yeah, and, and and I have a whole chapter on Lollards and Lollardy in in the book, and revisionist historians uh, are often accused, um, perhaps fairly actually, of of rather ignoring Lollardy. Um, and I think that's partly because of the way that Lollardy was seen in the past, which was that you know these guys are the pioneers, they're the advance guard, they're, they're the people who kind of you know, knew what was going on uh, before Luther. So. Um, The the, the Lollards are a kind of sign of an inevitable reformation and a church collapsing under its own contradictions, and I don't think that's true, Um, but nonetheless I wanted to talk about Lollards, because I think they're tremendously interesting, Um, and one of the things that they show is, first of all, that medieval Catholicism or the late medieval church is not monolithic, I think that's one of the great... um, errors that people make when they're talking about Catholicism, (laughs) perhaps whether they're talking about Catholicism in the 21st century uh, or in the 15th century, is that they see it as this very tightly controlled institutional monolithic block. Um, And certainly in the Middle Ages, it it isn't that. Uh, Arguably, it's become so since. But even so, you know, such a large institution is going to be extraordinarily varied. Um, uh, And also that Lollards are, are not outside the church. They're part of the church. They're in parishes. Um, uh, sometimes they even hold office as parish church wardens and take part in the rituals of, of the church uh, and yet they are at the same time clearly dissidents um, and uh, so that also I think you know, brings out to us that fairly ordinary people and lots often were pretty ordinary people craftsmen, artisans people like that, merchants ordinary people were capable of thinking about religious questions uh, and to some extent making up their own minds about it, and you know, that's one of the themes that I, I want to run through the book, and for us to see that that is already a feature of medieval religion, I think is quite important.
0: I, I like the way you frame it uh, at the beginning of the book, which is to say that it's not uniformity that exists, it's consensus. Sure. And how, in, in, so what is the, the general consensus of, of Christianity in England prior to the 1520s?
1: Wow. Well, um yeah, that's that that's a good question and having used uh, that that expression I think I need to to answer it. Um uh, I think I would say it's broadly speaking a consensus uh, about um the the nature of sacramental religion, right? Um uh which is just a fancy way of saying understanding the way that that, that God's power, God's presence, God's grace uh, is delivered to, uh, to humanity um, through material and ritual forms. So uh, there's no doubt that the mass is at the center of religious experience uh, for a very wide range of people in medieval England, from uh, the court and the palace, you know, right down to, to the local uh, village level. Um, broadly speaking, there's a consensus about what people need to do to be Saved, um, which is, uh, of course, to, to throw themselves on, on the mercy of God and to understand that um, Christ's death on the cross uh, has made their salvation possible. One of the, um, I think, rather ill-informed charges against medieval religion that's sometimes made is that it taught that people could completely win their own salvation, and they're certainly not being taught that. And I think probably most people didn't think that, but they, they did think that they needed to respond. They were given an offer of salvation Uh, by God through Christ, uh, and they needed to respond to it by the performing of good works of of various kinds. So a kind of collective effort um, to win salvation for yourself and indeed to win salvation for others through uh, prayer for them, particularly when they've died and they're suffering in purgatory, uh, is the consensus of late medieval religion. So uh, arguments, of course, about the details about uh, how important it is to go on pilgrimage to particular sites, or how important the saints are, or what role the Bible should play in, in all of this. But a, but a broad consensus, um, which is blown apart. And here I think, you know, probably I am being rather <laughs> traditional or old-fashioned uh, in seeing the, the ideas of the Reformers as really important. It is blown apart by a revolutionary idea, um, which really does start with Martin Luther, um, which is that human beings can do nothing at all to assist their own salvation. Um, they are, in the jargon, they are justified by faith alone, and they have to throw themselves entirely and completely on, on the mercy of, of God. So it's an idea which, um, on, on the one hand, of course, has folded into it a pretty negative view of uh, humanity and, and human effort, that everything that human beings do is intrinsically and completely sinful, yet paradoxically at the same time, um, it's clear that a number of people find that idea immensely empowering and liberating.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking primarily about faith, and yeah. yet there's another dimension that you also uh, address at considerable length in the book, which is the institution of the church. And this is an institution which is uh, transnational, the Catholic Church, it, and yet at the, it, it also is one that interacts with the national institution of the English state, to the degree that you could yeah. use the word nationalism uh, in, in the 16th century. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that relationship there, because as you describe in the book, it, it is a, a very important dimension of what's taking place in terms of religion during this period.
1: Sure. Well, it, it, it's an institutionally complicated uh, r- relationship. Um, I mean, in some ways, it seems pretty straightforward. Right across Europe... Um, that there is a clear kind of hierarchy of institutions, which, of course, at its apex, has the Pope uh, in Rome with his cardinals, uh, and then uh, across Europe, a network, a ascending network of archbishoprics, bishoprics, archdeaconries, deaneries, parishes, um, uh, and a clerical ladder from uh, the Pope down to, to humble parish priests. Um, so the, the sort of professional personnel of the, the Church uh, are everywhere part of this system um, and are in communion with each other and in communion with the Pope in Rome, their Holy Father, uh, as they have, have called him. Complicating that, of course, is that um, the personnel of the church have to combine this loyalty to Rome, loyalty to their bishop, um, with their duty as subjects to individual rulers, whether that's the King of France or the King of England or whoever it, it might be. Um, and and once again i think the, the way this has been seen in the past has offered us sort of false alternatives really there the, the was a view that this was simply unsustainable this idea of a um uh, an international international rather um church where people couldn't be loyal subjects uh, and a rising nationalism was simply bound to make the system blow apart um and uh, more recent views that in fact the church had already been pretty much effectively nationalized in England and in lots of other parts of Europe as well. So although in theory the Pope appoints the bishops, for example, really he doesn't do so without the King of England to say so, uh, and the church is pretty effectively taxed by the monarch, uh, and so there's no real reason for uh, an English king or a French king to break with Rome, because they pretty much get everything they want already um, from uh, the church within their their lands. Um, and to a considerable extent, that is true. So, of course, um, peculiar and indeed central to the story of the English Reformation is that Henry VIII finds something that he can't get from the church in his territory, which is a declaration that his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon is null and, and void. Um, But nonetheless, I do think that this is a a, a delicate balancing act. And the English bishops, um, um, for whom I've come to have a fair degree of respect, actually, the pre-Reformation English bishops, even though they were very much men of of the institution, uh, strike a very careful um, middle way between their awareness as being part of this um, uh, multinational um, uh, uh, communion across Europe uh, and their sense of loyalty to their king. Um, and most of the time it was possible to wear both of those hats at, at once, but the, the the pressures that come with Henry VIII's divorce campaign simply makes it impossible for that to continue.
0: I've often thought that's one of the reasons why we find this period so fascinating is because you're describing the, these layers of of, of faith, and, and then you have these, you know, this is one of institution and the and the church versus the state. But then there's also the, the, the complicating nuance of personality. And as you've already described, you have Henry VIII, who has a different set of interests and goals than, say, his father, Henry VII, uh, who you describe his working relationship with, with the church, and then, of course, uh, uh, contemporary monarchs throughout Europe, who – may have had those relationships already established as you described but who oftentimes because of their own particular uh needs or idiosyncrasies it required the church to constantly uh you know sort of uh tack and adjust to in order to uh take into consideration what those demands are and with henry you have this demand which is just you know becomes you know very challenging to 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 uh, adjust to uh sure
1: well uh Henry, of course, is an absolutely fascinating <laughs> figure. Um, w- w- one of the things that um, uh, I wanted to do with the book and the kind of task that I set myself was that although it was clearly a, a political narrative to be told and an important political narrative to be told, I didn't want it to be just the story of, of, of kings and, and, and bishops, and I try as far as possible uh, to bring in ordinary people and their perspectives and their experiences um, into the book at every stage, but, but nonetheless, of course... You know, you can't write Henry VIII out of the story. He's absolutely central to it. And um, one can't, of course, say that without Henry VIII's divorce, there would have been no English Reformation, but certainly it would have been a very, very different phenomenon uh, without that. Um, uh, The enigma of Henry, well, I mean, we could talk for for hours about this. And, you know, trying to put a label on Henry is a bit sort of pointless, really. I mean, um, one of the reasons we have a, a difficulty with him is that he doesn't, Really fit uh, inside any of the boxes that are retrospectively created. You know, he's not a, a Protestant. Um, uh, he certainly describes himself as a Catholic. Um, But nonetheless, his Catholicism moves in very dramatic and significant ways over the course of his life, and uh, by the time of his death, his Catholic faith is very different from that that he espoused in in his youth. Um, uh, Henry's, uh, of course, also becomes absolutely convinced of one thing, um, which is that God uh, has uh, created him. Uh, uh, and indeed all his predecessors who simply hadn't realized it, to be supreme head under Christ of the Church in their realm. Uh, And this is one of the things which I think is both central and unique to the English Reformation, is that there is this theological idea, the royal supremacy, that the secular ruler uh, is also a kind of theocratic um, uh, ruler over the Church, absolutely at its heart from start to finish, It's an idea which is found, um, even though secular rulers acquire a lot of authority over churches in large parts of Europe, um, the idea in that blunt form is found absolutely nowhere else. Um, Luther thinks it's a nonsense. Um, a lot of um, the early English reformers like William Tyndall can't really get their heads around it either. Um, so other English evangelicals, people who become Protestants, um, do eventually come to terms with it and uh, come to espouse it as, as well, partly out of self-interest, but at least in some cases like that of Thomas Cranmer, I think, because they, they genuinely b- believe it. Um, so uh, without Henry's royal supremacy over the Church, um, this would have been a very, very different story. And to start with, of course, you know, you can be very cynical and say, well, of course, the royal supremacy is just a mechanism to get him out of his hole over the divorce. Um, uh, every other avenue turns out in the end to be to be blocked. Rome is not going to give him what he wants, so he conveniently discovers that he doesn't need Rome because he's head of his own church, and therefore um, his archbishop of England can simply pronounce the divorce, and he can get on with Mary and Anne Boleyn. And, you know, that's absolutely right. Um, but even though... <laughs> I don't think Henry's a very admirable character. Um, uh, I don't. I don't see him as someone who is completely cynical. I, I do think that Henry genuinely comes to believe in this idea. Comes to believe in his own chosen status, his own vocation that God has given him, um, and by his own light sees himself as a genuine reformer with a with a mission to improve. Uh, the quality of of religion in England. Uh, And that goes in some pretty inconsistent and wayward directions over the course of his reign. But the fact that the king is serious about this, uh, I don't think is actually in doubt.
0: Henry, though, is at the core of the problem that you've talked about already, which is the degree to which we see it, the Reformation in England, as a top-down enterprise. And as you describe in the book, the antecedents of... The drive to uh, uh, to reform the church uh, predate him. You, you describe this great tradition, not just the Lollards, but you describe people like uh, you know, Thomas More, these other humanists uh, of the uh, of the sixteenth century, who are mooting these ideas, who are engaging in this discourse about changing the church long before Henry gets this brainwave that you know you know he needs to go ahead and and, and embark upon reform himself.
1: Oh, that that's that's absolutely right. And in a sense, the, the, the character of the English Reformation comes through uh, these two completely unconnected things kind of crashing into each other in the late 1520s. Um, one is a, a developing momentum for reform within the church, which uh, a generation earlier, as, as you rightly say, had been largely um, uh, pushed forward by um, people who saw themselves as orthodox and loyal to the church while recognizing its faults, um, so humanists Friends of Erasmus, like Thomas More, uh, and um, uh, humanistically inclined bishops like Cuthbert Tunstall of London. So these are people who who want to reform the church um, uh, institutionally and from from the top down, um, but increasingly find that they lose control of this process to much more radical reformers um, who are influenced by Luther's ideas. And uh, so an evangelical movement in England is firmly underway by the mid-1520s. Um, and in the later 1520s this evangelical movement kind of hits into henry 's divorce campaign, um, which has failed in its attempt to sort of make process, uh, or make progress uh, through legal channels um, and starts turning towards history and theology and Henry starts becoming rather interested in what these evangelicals are saying uh, about the, uh, the power of the, the, the papacy and so on, and how perhaps that's all a great swindle and popes should just butt out and they're just simply bishops of Rome, we shouldn't have authority anywhere else in, in, in Europe. Um, so yes, certainly there is a reform movement underway before Henry sets eyes on, on Anne Boleyn. Um, and um, the, the phrase which is often used to describe the English Reformation, which is that we should simply see it as an act of state, um, is something that I really wanted to um, to wrestle with and to persuade people is actually is actually not the case. Of course, in some ways, um, it is true <laughs> that the power of the state um, enforces the break with Rome um, and uh, leads to the punishment and execution of people like Thomas More and his friend Bishop John Fisher who who oppose it. Um, and it's also, I suppose, there's no getting away from it, broadly true that what the uh, state authorities want in terms of structures of the church liturgies religious reform is largely what happens and yet and yet um i try to argue that um the state never really manages to completely control this process even though you might expect it to because england is a fairly compact fairly well governed fairly centralized state by european standards but right from the outset, um, the state doesn't manage to keep control of the energies, the forces of reform. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is just the sheer idiosyncrasy of Henry's own religious ideas, which don't really chime with traditional Catholicism or with the, the new evangelical fervor. So Henry very, very firmly sets his face against justification by faith, that radical, liberating new idea that I was talking about earlier. Henry has absolutely no time for it um, and uh, r- opposes it. At the same time, he defends... What I was talking about earlier is the central consensual idea of late medieval religion, the mass, the physical real presence of the body of Jesus Christ in the bread and wine of the mass, which most evangelicals move away from. Um, But at the same time, Henry is prepared to ditch so many other things which are central to um, Catholic Christianity in the Middle Ages, Uh, shrines, monasteries, um, very importantly, purgatory, prayer for the dead in purgatory henry doesn't um seem to think very much of so um henry's rather idiosyncratic religion i mean there probably are other people apart from henry who believe in it (laughs) but not (laughs) tremendously many uh, i think um and in the process um uh people at uh, every level of society are, are, as i said before starting to make up their own minds um and uh, uh starting to take reform in their their own directions um henry knows this is happening it's it's one of the the great ironies of of the process is that um he like all his successors but but henry i think particularly is absolutely obsessed with both obedience and uniformity He's a kind of broken record on this subject. Public pronouncements about the need for uniformity, uh, and for the positive side of uniformity, charity, and for people to agree with each other, and for people not to call each other opprobrious names, not to call each other papist or heretic. You know, why can't we all uh, just get along, Henry seems to be saying. Um, uh, and the irony is that um, his actions, his break with Rome, his propaganda campaign against the Pope, his... Um, setting forth the energies of the printing press uh, and of evangelical preachers in the pulpit have fundamentally divided the country from quite an early stage in a way that can't really be put back together.
0: And that also gets to another uh, argument you make in the book which is how you describe it as as the Reformation as the Pyrrhic victory of the English state in the sense that it begins a process of transforming really the ability of people to what we doubt is would Perhaps and this may be a, a bit of an over uh, statement, but to critically think, and it's not just what Henry does, but as you describe, it's a process that takes place over the course of the entire sixteenth century because of the subsequent changes that take place with what Edward does, with what you know what, what Mary tries to do with, with with what you know Elizabeth does and, and, and the environment that this creates within the the, the country as a whole.
1: Oh, that's absolutely right, Mark. Yes. Um, uh, I think in a way that's kind of the the central argument of, of the book that although in many ways the english reformation is of course a tragic story and a destructive story uh, very destructive of human life as well as of you know things of, of beauty at the same time i do see it as as liberating N- not, not in the sense that people find the truth that they didn't have before i, I remain or i try to remain scrupulously neutral about what the truth is that these people are, are arguing about but it's liberating in the sense that people are able to come to their own judgment uh, among these competing truths Um, and that of course is what is I I think dramatically new uh, uh, about this going back to what we were talking about earlier about medieval Christianity being diverse um, but also consensual the breakdown the, the consensus cannot be maintained because what the Reformation produces are simply completely incompatible versions Of what god expects from people and of what is necessary to do to be saved so you know the most important human question of all in the society what do i need to do to be saved what does god want of me Uh, there are there are incompatible answers to that question and they of course can't all be right uh one of the things that uh, again is very sort of striking and important about this period is that it's one which does not at all share any kind of modern instinct towards relativism. that um, There the, the must be only one truth. Uh, and yet it's a society in which um, uh, divergent, competing, incompatible versions of that truth, a kind of pluralism, is coming into being. That, of course, makes things tremendously uh, unstable. Um, and it also makes it tremendously difficult for the state to carry on, or for the crown, perhaps we should say, to carry on commanding unquestioned authority from people who believe that um, what it's requiring them to do may actually, you know, cost them their their, their very souls. Um, So, um, uh, yeah, the Pyrrhic victory of of, of the state, the the irony that uh, elevating the status of the monarchy, uh, elevating the king or the queen above the pope, saying that they are supreme head in all spiritual and secular matters, uh, at the same time um, is undermining the power of the monarchy to actually command the obedience or respect of, of all of its subjects. Um, just sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on and sort of throw another thought on, on, on top of that, because uh, another of the ideas which is often said about the, the English Reformation is that people must just have been extraordinarily confused and disorientated, and that nobody knows what's going on. This is, I guess, an idea that most people Um, would recognize or remember about the Reformation in England, perhaps even more so than other places in Europe. Uh, It's a kind of seesaw. Things swing backwards and forwards. Henry breaks with the Pope. He seems to be going in a pretty Protestant direction. Then he swings back in a more Catholic one. Then when he dies, his son Edward VI introduces a a full-on Swiss-style Reformation with destruction of shrines and uh, replacement of the mass. And then when he dies, um, the half-sister Mary tries to bring everything back in a much more Catholic direction. The mass is reintroduced, monasteries are re-established, and then with Elizabeth, the pendulum swings backwards uh, uh, again. So there's this um, kind of constant change, or regular change at least, over a period of decades, uh, and people have no idea what's going on, and they perhaps just simply, you know, get their head down and you know, carry on with, with life and let uh, other people worry about these questions. Um, well, maybe, but uh, increasingly I became just sort of rather... Um, Uh, unconvinced that that is what's really going on because um, one of the things which clearly accompanies this story at every stage is an attempt at persuasion Um, every single one of these revolutionary changes in religion is accompanied by new liturgies by new works in uh, English from the printing press trying to persuade people of the justification for these new liturgies and the new reforms by instructions to preachers to stand in the pulpit and present them. So in a sense, I I see the English Reformation as a kind of giant schoolroom, really, over a period of of several decades where people are getting this continuous class in religious doctrine and what it means. And of course, you know, not everybody is paying a great deal of attention. Um, But I suspect... Uh, very strongly that the average person who's lived through this process, um, and uh, perhaps come to adulthood through it, is going to be much more informed about doctrinal questions than perhaps an equally faithful or religious person a century earlier, who had not had this barrage of justifications um, and persuasion that uh, is unleashed by the break with Rome and what follows from it.
0: There does seem to be uh, it, it, if I may revert to another metaphor, as sort of a, a marketplace being created, and, and people are being compounded sure. p- with with all sorts of of explanations for why you know this direction is to, go, is to go. And and a lot of people do make those choices. And you describe in the book uh, the, that process confessionalization, as you put it, the creation yep. of these communities of, of 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 like-minded believers who've come to that via choice and not by the fact that the, it was just the faith they grew up with.
1: Yes, no I think that that's, that's absolutely right and, and the jargony word that historians use here is is confessionalization um, um, which uh, it, it involves a, a clearer sense of religious identity around a more sort of propositional doctrinal form of, of, of religion um, and I, I try to keep jargony words like that out of the book um, <laughs> as, as much as, as as I possibly can, but nonetheless, I think things do change and, and they change for everybody i mean one of the uh, the, the points i, I i try and make in the book is that um catholicism which of course is not completely destroyed and doesn't disappear it remains as 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 one of the pluralistic options in this marketplace that you just mentioned but catholicism is not simply the residue it's not simply the leftover part Um, catholicism in the mid or late 16th century in england cannot be the same as it was 100 years earlier um, at, at the risk of oversimplified, we could say this is the move from Catholicism to Roman Catholicism, to people actually um, understanding that what they are part of is, is a, a denomination, uh, a tighter confessional identity. Or, or perhaps a better way to put it is that um, Catholics in, say, the 1580s, um, know that they are Catholics because they are not Protestants, which could not, of course, be true um, of their great-grandparents 100 years earlier. So that element of, of choice, of alternatives, um, changes religious identities for everybody, because by, by affirming one choice, even if it's the choice that, as it were, you've grown up with that's been passed on to you, um, you are still implicitly turning down the others. And that, I think, is something which uh, is really near the, I mean, I try not to make two grand claims for you know, the origins of modernity or the origins of modern religion, but I think that's an idea that we can recognize that faith identities um, are, um, in a sense, chosen uh, and can be changed.
0: And the state never really makes an effort to, uh, uh, I shouldn't say they don't make an effort, but they never, they never make a really determined effort to try to end that, do they?
1: Well, um this is a historian's answer of course so i'm going to say yes and no (laughs) um one of the things that of course we don't have at any point in this period um is formal toleration um, even the kind of formal toleration which, during the same period is introduced in, in France as a result of the kind of stalemate in, in the religious civil wars there, um, so at, at every single stage, there is one official religion um, which everybody is supposed to uh, adhere to uh, and can, in theory, be punished and punished pretty severely for, for refusing to so uh, that 's another of the paradoxes is that there 's a de facto pluralism within a, a legal framework of uniformity. Um, Beyond that, I think you're you're right that that, there isn't a sustained attempt to really eradicate um, dissidents or religious minorities, um, largely because it's simply not possible to. I mean, in the case of of, uh, Henry VIII, um, when he starts this revolutionary process, I mean, he knows, his advisors know, that the majority of the population would still, given a free choice, go back to the world that they've grown up with. Uh, and while the, the, the most kind of dangerous dissidents, people like Thomas More or some of the uh, the Carthusian monks, let's say, who are so visible and uh, well-known for their, their piety, they can, be, uh, they can be dealt with. But uh, a bit more of a blind eye is turned to grumbling and mumbling uh, among the ordinary people. Um, I guess we get closest to it... Um, uh, of course in mary's reign and uh, this is well known bloody mary 300 burnings between 1555 and and 1558 uh, um a fairly determined attempt to impose religious uniformity so even then you know it's not a, as if there's a kind of gestapo going around and knocking on doors and dragging everybody out and um putting large numbers of people to to, to death the 300 who who die um Tragic, of course, uh, and uh, each of those deaths is a a story of heroism, I think. Um, Yet they are people who, and I'm picking my words carefully here, (laughs) in a sense, chose that death um, because of their very public dissidence. They made themselves conspicuous um, in one way or another. Um, And, of course, the great majority of uh, Protestants of Reformers in Mary's reign uh, don't end up in that kind of, of jeopardy. Um, and then in Elizabeth's reign, while there are a few um, among the leading Protestants who'd quite like to do <laughs> to the Catholics what the Catholics had been doing to them in, in Mary's reign, um, that course is not followed. Um, and we're going back to monarchs here uh, again, I'm afraid, but um, largely because of the um, the, the, the extraordinary um, character of Elizabeth I, and um, a- a- although um, I keep something. Keep coming back here to monarchs. Having said, I didn't want the book to be all about monarchs and, and the story of monarchs. But um, Elizabeth uh, and her 44 years on the throne is absolutely central to this. And Elizabeth, who is herself a product of the English Reformation, I mean, she's almost the kind of physical cause of it, uh, as uh, Anne Boleyn's daughter, of course, uh, and who has survived um, the years of danger and difficulty through Edward's reign and and Mary's reign, touch and go indeed at some points in her sister's reign by keeping her head down. Um, uh, Elizabeth as queen has no appetite for that kind of um, attempt to impose. I mean, she certainly wants uh, an outward conformity, but she doesn't want to. uh, The famous phrase that's used about her, of course, um, is that she did not want to make windows into men's hearts and secret thoughts. Um, a cause of frustration to some of her evangelical advisors who genuinely want to convert everybody to the truth of Protestantism. Um, but Elizabeth does not, does not push that. So the idiosyncrasy of Henry at one end, the idiosyncrasy of Elizabeth at the other. Um, I think helps, to, uh, or helps us to understand um, why um, England becomes, to, to borrow your phrase again, this sort of marketplace of religion um, and a, a place of flourishing religious pluralism despite the legal obligation for everybody to do and believe the same thing.
0: And yet the irony there is that it's Elizabeth who in effect defines England as Protestant power by intervening in the Netherlands in the 1580s, and then going to war against the you know, preeminent Catholic power of the age in Spain in, in uh, 1587, albeit not by choice.
1: Oh, sure, and and I think that the, the not by choice there is 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 quite Im- important. Uh, Elizabeth's reign has, of course, been subject to a huge deal of mythmaking uh, over over the years. Um, uh, the idea of a kind of Elizabethan golden age. I mean, that's true, of course, in, in some obvious ways in you know, literature and, uh, and, and so on. Um, uh, the age of Drake and Hawkins and, you know, heroic Daring Do and, and, and all of that. Um, I'm not the first historian, of course, to counter that by saying that um, Elizabeth's reign is a period of extraordinary instability and insecurity. Um, largely around uh, the succession itself. And uh, the the extraordinary fact about Elizabeth, of course, is that she becomes the Virgin Queen, which is uh, a piece of remarkable spin, making the best out of a very bad (laughs) job, really, because (laughs) nobody in her reign really thought that it was a good idea that she did not marry or or produce an an heir. Um, And for much of her reign, of course, there is a sort of heir in waiting who is unacceptable to the Protestant leadership and to much of the country. And that's our cousin, Mary, Queen of, of Um So um, <clears throat> the fact that eventually uh, Elizabeth is willing, when the evidence against Mary and her plotting becomes incontrovertible, stacks up so much, eventually Elizabeth is willing to have Mary executed in 1587, and that um, produces an element of, of stability. But... Um, Again, going back to something I, I think I said at the, the start of our, our, our talk about getting rid of a sense of inevitability about the, the English Reformation and um, myths that the English kind of have about themselves, I think, that there's something kind of intrinsically sensible and moderate about all of this. Uh, you know, on the continent of Europe, they were doing all the ghastly things, but the English Reformation was always going to be a kind of pragmatic, moderate middle way. Um, and frankly, I just don't buy that. Um, uh, and I think that is a kind of a talk... Um, uh, rationalization or explanation of events simply as they happen to to turn out um it is true of course that england does not have the kind of religious civil war in the late 16th century that breaks out in france but i think the reason it doesn't have that sort of uh, religious civil war uh, or the reasons are largely contingent it's it's not something intrinsic to uh, the moderate character of the English nation uh, or of the form of Protestantism that's been, that been established here. Um, and that uh, if Elizabeth had died, which at various points looks a real possibility when she contracts smallpox in 1562, for example, and Mary had staked her claim with considerable backing, Uh, And um, Protestants had set their face absolutely firmly against that. I think it's entirely imaginable that there would have been um, a pretty bloody conflict in, um, as it were, post-Elizabethan England.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your well, time, so of your go, time. but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> 2017,
1: of course, um, uh, is a pretty busy year for those of us who work on the Reformation. Um, and we, you know, most of the time, of course, um, people are not tremendously interested in what we do or, or what we say or what we think. So we're, we're seizing this opportunity with, with both hands. Um, so uh, I have been fairly busy in the run-up to 2017. Um, and, in fact, um, am I allowed to plug another book?
0: <laughs> you are allowed to plug as many okay. books as you work in, um, as I understand, you're, you're you have a very prolific year. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so the plug is for a book which is coming out uh, towards the end of the summer, um, which is called 1517. Um, obviously marking the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation and Martin Luther. Uh, the subtitle is a little more provocative. Um, it is Martin Luther and the invention of the Reformation. Uh, and the book is really, um, well, my, my English book has been a sort of very broad canvas. Uh, my Martin Luther book is a, is a very narrow one. It's, uh, it looks at uh, a single event, which is the posting of the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October, 1517. Famous event, one of the most famous events in Western history, of course, the start of the Reformation. Um, And I argue that this event almost certainly does not happen, that it's a a myth, an invented uh, process. Um, and precisely for that reason it's really important to understand its history and so uh, I sort of skate through five centuries um, looking at how that non-event as I would argue uh, is remembered and reimagined and what that tells us about the place of the Reformation um, in uh, the imagination of uh, British people and Germans and indeed Americans over the course of 500 years.
0: Well I had- Well, I have to say, if it is half as good as your book uh, that we've been talking about today, then I know it's definitely going to be a book well worth reading. Uh, Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day, Peter.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark.